Okay, all right, there we go. Now I can say it. Good morning. Welcome to Church at the Square. So, we are, okay, let me, complicated setup for the sermon, then we'll do the setup for the, the passage. Open your Bible to Titus. So that's a tiny one. It might be like a page and a half in there. So don't be ashamed. If you have to use the table of contents to find that book, we will not look or giggle, okay? Go find Titus. It is in the New Testament. And if you find any of Paul's letters, just uh, work your way towards the end of those letters and you'll stumble upon Titus. Any other letters that start with T, keep going. It is the last of the T's. So I told y'all, those who have asked, we are studying Malachi next. And I said, I'm true to that, that's happening. And I said we were going to take one week on membership. So that one week evolved into two and further into three. Okay, so we're still doing Malachi, but there's this kind of coming together of of different things. Usually, February is the month where we do our disciple-making surveys, and you'll notice you don't have one. It's because the elders are kind of re-envisioning how we're going to do the disciple-making process. All of that is coming together. I'm really excited about the meeting we have Thursday, guys. I'm going to wrap up some of these things. It's going to be really exciting to move forward this year with you guys, with everything that's happening. And so putting all these pieces together, I wanted to kind of put a more complicated piece of the puzzle together. So to do that, I wanted to spend three weeks kind of working out what exactly it is that we are doing. And so the title of the series is, What Are We Doing? And the context that question is being asked asked in is, as a church, what are we doing? What is our role? What is our place? What should our daily life, what should our community be like, what are we doing, and what better way to answer that question than to read a small letter Paul wrote explaining to a not well-known figure what he should be doing as he's planting churches. And so we're going to study the letter in a very high-level, fast sort of manner. So I hope you find this engaging. We're going to look at it from a kind of a bird's-eye view rather than our typical on-the-ground picking up every rock, looking, seeing what's under there, moving around. So we're going to do one chapter at a time of Titus. So week one will be Titus one, week two will be Titus two, week three will be Titus three. And we're going to see how Paul is equipping or teaching Titus to work with these churches here in Crete. And so let's just do it this way. Rather than me giving you the long, um, drawn-out history of how Paul got in the position where he's writing a letter to a guy in Crete. We're going to just start in the text and work out some of those details as we go. All right, so that's what we're doing. Titus chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 1, and we're going to do the whole first chapter. Everybody prepared? Anybody excited? That's pretty good. Scott, you got him pumped up, man. I'm excited about that. I'm excited. Scott's usually the one excited. No, I'm excited. Okay, here we go. Titus chapter 1. Paul. So who wrote this letter? Very good. Not a lot of, you know, skill required to work that out. So Paul wrote this letter. It's also, you know, in the series of Pauline letters in your Bible. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Of course, apostle here, we're thinking capital A, apostle. The word itself just means one sent with authority. We could use it in a very generic sense. And someone has a strong, powerful ministry, we could call it apostolic. But if we want to be faithful to the primary usage of the word in the New Testament, we're talking capital A, and sent with authority means sent with whose authority? 
the authority of Christ himself. He has granted authority to a select number of men. Paul, being the last of those, he calls himself the untimely apostle. He is the one sent with the authority of God. He clarifies that in most of his letters. He's not just a servant. He's not just a bond servant. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, the rest of this paragraph, I have to be honest, it's really hard for me to just move over quickly and get to the rest of the chapter because we could spend a whole series on what's going on and just this introduction of Paul's letter. So we're going to give the short version. So Paul's an apostle for Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So who is Paul ministering to? It's those who will come to faith in Christ. He's going to train them up and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So these people that are elected, Scott used the word several times this morning, those chosen people of God's, he's training them in righteousness so that they'll understand the truth and live in godliness in hope, verse 2, of eternal life. Paul's on that. We always need to remind ourselves what eternal life in the scriptures mean. If you grew up in church, eternal life means one day you'll die and get to live forever. In the Bible, that's not what the word eternal life means. Eternal is an adjective that refers to when you live, not how long you live. All right, so what do we call the final age? Eternity, the eternal age. If you're alive in that age, then you have what kind of life? Eternal life. All right, so you have life on the other side. Well, what if you don't get to be alive in that age? What's the other possible state? Eternal death. All right, both of those, how long do they last? They do last forever. They are eternal, but the point is when. So Paul's doing all of this in hope of eternal life. So eyes focused on the end, the end goal. Paul says this in another letter that he wants to attain to the resurrection of the dead, which is the beginning of that eternal age. He's pointing towards that in hope of eternal life. So he reaches all the way to the end, says, in hopes of that which God promised, who never lies before the ages began. Do you see his visual imagery here? So he reaches to the farthest extent. Which way would the timeline go for y'all? This way? I feel like, keep, okay, this way. So he reaches to the furthest extent future, he can say, and God promised to do that to his elect when? Before the ages began. All the way opposite end of the timeline. So at the beginning, before the beginning even, before time started ticking, God promised that we would have eternal life. Now that's a fascinating topic because before the ages began, there's God and what else? Nothing. I mean, outside of God, what else is there that was not created? Nothing. There's God. And then there's stuff God made. So the only two things exist. So God made a promise before there was anything else that he would take us to the end, eternal life. Now, who did he make that promise to? That's inside the Trinity. This is an inter-Trinitarian, if you want a fancy term, covenant. In theology, we call this the covenant of redemption. This is God's plan. You really want the fancy term, it's the pactum salutis. God made a plan at the very beginning to do this great work in Christ. And God cannot do one very specific thing according to this passage. He cannot lie. It's not possible. It's not just that he does not. See that. He cannot. 
light. We have a tendency to think of God in terms of just absolutes. He's absolute whatever we fill in the blank. So he can do anything. That's not technically correct. God cannot not be himself. God is truth, right? He's not just truthful. He is truth. He's not just loving. What does the Bible say he is? He is love. He cannot not be those things. He cannot not exist. He cannot not be himself. That's why Paul gives that statement. When he, when we are faithful, he is faithful. When we are faithless, he is still faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. So if God makes a promise at the very beginning that he's going to do this redemptive work in us, save us and take us to eternal life, how solid of a guarantee would you say that is? We, we could say you could take it to the bank, right? I guess. Maybe the bank is not nearly as solid an illustration as we need for this one. Absolute guarantee that the hope that was promised before the ages began will come to fruition. Verse 3, and at the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So is Paul doing something new that had never entered the mind of God before? No. Very simply, Paul got to participate in a plan that not only outdated him, but predated creation itself. Paul was excited to play this particular role in that great plan of God's salvation. Verse 4, to Titus. So who's the letter written to? So it's from Paul to Titus. Have we heard of Titus before? Okay, Titus is one of Paul's companions. It's easy to mix up him and Timothy. Timothy was the one who was um, part Jewish. So he ended up, if you remember the whole debacle about whether or not Jews had to be circumcised or whether or not Gentiles had to be circumcised to be members of the church. So they make the decision in the early church that they do not have to be circumcised. And so Paul takes Timothy and immediately after hearing this information gets Timothy circumcised because Jimothy's, Timoth, Jimothy. <laughs> Jimothy. That's a good name. Somebody should name their kid Jimothy. Jimothy. Wow. Have I said that more than once? You're all laughing pretty hard. Okay, I'm, I'm worried that I say it the whole time. All right, so, oh, now I can't say it. T- Timothy, oh, man. Timothy is part Jewish, so Paul circumcising just to, for missional outreach purposes. Titus, on the other hand, is Paul's other companion of Greek descent, does not get him circumcised. So we've referenced him a few times. That's the context he comes up in in Galatians. And he's writing this letter to Titus, my true child in a common Faith, grace to you and peace from God our Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So verse 4 is very formulaic for Paul. This is how he opens most of his letters, grace and peace. So that's the introduction or the salutation, we could say, the the greeting. Now the formal letter begins then in verse 5. So that's his intro. Verse 5, now Paul is going to tell Titus why he's writing the letter or what is going on. So he says, this is why I left you in Crete. So there's a lot of things we can assume so far. Had Paul been in Crete, he had to or he couldn't have left Titus there. We also know where is Titus? He's in Crete. So Paul, if you read the the narrative of Acts, we don't see Paul make this journey. So we have two options. Either 
Luke doesn't include everything, which we know is the case. He doesn't include everything. A lot of what's in Paul's own testimony in Galatians is not in the book of Acts. So there's another missionary journey, or a more commonly held belief is that after Acts ends, where's Paul when the book of Acts ends? Do you remember? He's in Rome, in prison. Church tradition says that that imprisonment ended, and he got set free, was imprisoned again, and then executed in that second imprisonment. So the other option is Paul is doing this particular missionary work after the book of Acts ends, which would make sense. That's why it's not in there. So he's left Titus there. So he's gone on to continue mission, and now he's writing back to Titus, who he left in Crete to do work there. So this is why I left you there, he says, so that you might put what remained into order. So Paul had begun the work. Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus is going to finish the work. So what remained needs to be put in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. As I directed you implies Paul had done what? Already told him, this is what your job is. I've already directed you to appoint elders in every town. Now that would be, if he's appointing elders in a town, what is he putting in every town? A church. This is church planning. So his ministry in Crete is to plant churches. He's equipping the elders who will be the leaders in those churches. He may be moving to town to town. We don't know exactly what his strategy is, but that's what his job is. He's training people, making them elders so that he can plant churches everywhere. Now remember, we looked at this last week when we finished the Sermon on the Mount. All believers are called to do what? Make disciples. All right? Is Titus making disciples? Yes, in a very specific way. Everyone's specific call to disciple-making is going to look different. Another way we refer to that, in membership especially, is spiritual gifts. That's your specific role. That's the way you participate in the disciple-making process. So Titus is making disciples specifically by sending out church planners or by going with them and training them, leaving them be and continuing the process. We don't know exactly what his strategy was, but his role in Crete is to set everything in order and appoint these elders in every town. So here's what first blank in the outline. Every church has a context. Every church has a context, meaning every church mission is going to be a little unique. A little unique because the general purpose and goal of every church is exactly the same, but every place you go, every person you talk to is a little different. The mission will be a little different. The flavor of your particular mission will be a little different. If you go to an ice cream shop and you see a hundred different flavors of ice cream, the difference between those types of ice cream is hardly anything, but you can taste the difference, right? Some of them, I can't even taste the difference. The color's different. It's a different pigment. But the basic components of all of them are identical. It's exactly the same. We worship the same God. We serve under the same banner for the same mission, but it'll look a little different in every scenario. Same thing is true here for Titus. So this is what he's going to do, appoint elders. So let's look at what Paul says about elders. If anyone is above reproach, the husband 
of one wife, and as children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, or an overseer, so quick um, side note, we say the word elder. In most churches today, the position I am in at this church is called what? We usually say pastor. It's the least common term in the New Testament for my position. The two most common terms for what I do in this church are the word we saw in verse 5 and the word we see in verse 7. Elder and overseer. Now, if you have an older translation, you may have a different word here for overseer. Someone have a different word? Anybody have the word bishop? All right, that's where the word bishop comes from. Episcopal in the Greek. So that's where the name of the Episcopal church comes from. And then presbyter is the word for elder. The Presbyterian church gets its name from that particular term. So elders and overseers you'll see in the Bible are the same thing. They're not two different positions. They're different words for the same position. And it just so happens that in several cases, those elders or overseers are called to shepherd people. Now, what do you think another English word for shepherd is? Pastor. So that's the thing. So generally speaking, elders have two particular functions. They oversee and they shepherd. So those are two different terms to describe what they are, what they do. So an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So what exactly is Titus commanded to do? Not just find people that fit that description, but to do what? To equip them, to train them, to mold them. There's another term for that. We call it disciple-making. This is what Titus is doing towards a specific end. These men will become disciple-makers. They'll become elders. They'll become like Titus in their own community. They will be the ones leading the charge, overseeing the flock, shepherding, feeding the word to the people. So every church, point two in your outline, every church needs godly elders who can lead. Guys, you've got some good elders at this church. Let me say that and affirm that before you. And you as a church during um, January spent some time in prayer and thinking and, and made some recommendations to, to add some new men to that list of elders. And y'all have a, um, designated three names that we as elders are going to look at and, and um, assess and equip. And I'll just say right out of the gate that all three names are excellent choices. The, act, the, fact, the fact that we have a church congregation with so many godly men is actually quite fascinating. To see that God has done a work here among this group to, to equip, to train, to sanctify men who are in love with Jesus and the mission and the word, it's exciting to see. Guys, we have elders who are desperate to lead this church in disciple-making. And we're working on that and praying about that and brainstorming how we can best lead you. But every church needs this, not just ours. Let's look down at verse 10. So train elders. And now here's the next piece. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, 
and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, who would want to name their party after that? And we're part of the circumcision party. They probably did not call themselves that, okay, if we're honest. This is Paul's slightly derogatory way of referring to them. Let's, let's be known by that. This is the group Paul has fought. It's seemingly everywhere. They're usually Jews who have in some fashion come to faith in Christ, yet believe that in order to be saved, in order to truly be one of God's people, you have to fully embrace Judaism and all of its laws, outwardly and inwardly, and Christ, and you can be saved. Now, Paul says in Galatians that that's not the gospel. It's not another gospel. It's not a gospel at all. He goes as far as to say as if that's your worldview, you may in fact be damned. That cannot save you because Jesus plus anything else does not equal salvation. Jesus alone. That's why we have in the five solas, if you remember that, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, nothing else contributes to salvation. So this is Paul's context. Every church has a context. Every culture has particular sins where Paul is training, where Paul is sending Titus. There are many there who are influenced by the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. You know, anytime you create a list, these are the things that make a Christian a true Christian. This is the, the good guys versus the bad guys. This is what it really means to follow Christ. I bet you just described yourself. Okay? That's what they're doing. When you do that, where do you end up on the hierarchy? Well, you're at the top. And the more people that you make act like you, the higher your pedestal gets. So Paul says all these Judaizers, these circumcision party, these whatever we want to call them, they're shameful gain in their teaching. So what do you think these elders are supposed to be combating? That exact theology. Anything that's against the gospel, they are here to destroy. So next blank. Every church battles deceptive theology. It's unique in different cultures. I bet you've never met anyone who was part of the circumcision party. Okay, It's not our problem. Usually there, there's a hint of that and some things that go on, but that's not our, pr- our primary battle in this culture. I'd say more than anything, it's different versions of the prosperity gospel. Different versions of if you believe this or if you do this, then your life will work out great. If you do this, everything will be better. If you parent this way, your children will never make mistakes. If you order your life this way, then you'll have success and riches. If you do this in your relationships, then they'll always be helpful and good and fruitful. If you just have a little more faith, you won't get sick. They're all different versions of that. And part of our role as elders, part of our role as Christians, is to speak against that in the culture. Now, that's not the only problem they had in Crete. Verse 12, this is one of the funniest parts in all of Scripture to me. It's just every time I read this, I chuckle. Okay, so this is what he says. One of the Cretans. Now remember, who's talking? Paul. Now Paul, he's an interesting guy in Scripture because he's well-read, not just in the Bible. You know, when we read those things about how the Jews acted, most Jews weren't actually like that. It's mostly just the Pharisees who emphasized the Torah so much. But what was Paul? He was a Pharisee. Paul doesn't say he was a Pharisee. He says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, like if you have Pharisees, those are the legalistic people, 
then he was the group within that group that was legalistic and made the rest of them look like they were licentious. Okay? That's Paul. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. Yet, interestingly enough, he's read everything. He goes to Mars Hill, where the Greek philosophers are, and instead of quoting the Old Testament, he just starts rattling off Greek philosophy better than we know it today. He's memorized it enough to quote it to them, and now he's writing to this missionary in Crete, and he starts quoting Cretan philosophers. That's just fascinating that he knows this. But here's, here's the quote. This is amazing. A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Verse 13. This testimony is true. That's just awesome to me. This testimony, I appreciate that my daughter thought that was so funny. It's genetic. That's hilarious to me. Okay. So Crete actually had this reputation in the ancient world. There's not even in the scriptures. We're just talking secular Greek writings. There's two explicit references to calling Cretans evil, wicked people. One guy, I don't remember the name of the guy. That One ancient historian, who wrote histories, whoever the guy was that wrote that, that document, he said, Crete was so bad that armed robbery on the highway was considered honorable. Like, that's the way they refer to Crete. It's known as the place where bad stuff happens. And we have the same sort of idea. We think about, you know, come on, we're in the South. We always point the finger to one particular state that is... That is the location of all sin and depravity and wickedness. California. I mean, it comes out every time, right? Isn't that what we say? But we can bring it down closer. To some people who live in Jackson County, that place of depravity is Gautier, right? To some people, it's Ocean Springs. To some people, it's Pascagoula. Or for some of us, it's like, man, up, you cross the interstate, you go north. Golly. Or you get into George County. We have statements like that that are proverbial. Now, Paul, this is, Paul's like, it's true. In Crete, it's bad. He's been there. He knows. Now, does he mean every single person in Crete is depraved? <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> but he doesn't necessarily mean totally in the same way depraved like the cultural proverb is. But yes, it's bad there. This is a wicked people. Doesn't care about, and even in their own culture, compared to other Greeks, not considered good people at all. That's what's going on there. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, that's actually fascinating. He did not say, therefore, because there's no hope for those people. Not even on his radar. No. What's on his radar is that's their particular sin, that's what we push for repentance in. No concept whatsoever ever that those people are outside of the elect that have been called before the foundation of the earth to receive eternal life. He's pressing forward into the mission, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. So you see both sides of that. On one side you have these crazy legalists. On the other side, you have these antinomian, everything goes, anything goes, the more creative, the better it goes, sort of worldview. Neither one of them is right. Don't you see the same sort of cultural implications in our own society? We have the Christians that are the legalists, 
and we have the world that is anything and everything, and let's make up new stuff every day that is sin, and Paul is saying, no, let's train our people away from all of that so that they may be sound in the faith. To the pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's not a positive message so far. Paul has very strong things to say, not because he doesn't have hope, but precisely because he does. He's writing to Titus to take the gospel, to train elders, to train churches, to walk away from the things of the world, and to pursue godliness precisely because he believes in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. But we've got to pause on that. That comes in chapter 3. So here's what we want to do. We, the elders, want to equip you with a biblical worldview and a godly lifestyle. You see both of those going on in the passage. This is our role. This is what we pray for. This is what we work for and labor for. This is why our brainstorming sessions have been so amazing because we want to come together and see our people as part of this church adopt a biblical worldview. There's a lot of worldviews. And if it's not God's worldview, you're viewing the world incorrectly. We want to equip you to see it God's way and to live in that way. And that's what part of being a member of a church is about. So we do have formal membership at our church. And the directories, we've got almost everyone's picture. So if you know for sure your picture has not been taken for the church directory, please get with me as soon as possible. We're going to have an official list of people. This is who the membership of our church is so we can pray for one another, do this mission together, equip one another to grow in the faith and grow in good works. I'm excited to see what's coming. So every church, the main point of this sermon is really set up. Every church's specific way of making disciples is going to take on a unique flavor. And that's what we're working out at Church at the Square right now. So plug in and be a part.